Hey everybody, Jason here. Before we get started, I wanted to make an announcement. So this weekend, which is uh, March 30th, April 1st, and April 2nd, I will be attending a brand new convention. It is called Circle DC. It is in Washington, D.C., run by Kevin Bertram from Fort Circle Games. It is an historical gamers conference on the East Coast, the first of its kind. A lot of folks are going to be there. David Thompson, Liz Davidson, Sebastian Bay, Jason Matthews, designer of Twilight Struggle, Marie Suckling, Toy Brown, designer of Votes for Women, and many, many more. If you like historical gaming, which is what we're going to talk about here on this show uh, with Landed Freedom with Alex Knight, who also will be at CircleCon, uh, it would be a wonderful place to go. Now, my sincere apologies. We didn't make this announcement before. It turns out that there are still tickets available. So if you want to stop by and really have some fun with your historical games, war gaming, Euro gaming with historical themes, which is where I am <laughs> in terms of my own gaming life, then please check that out. Uh, the link is in the show notes below. There are still tickets available. So if your weekend has not been occupied, if you don't have plans yet, uh, we would love to see you down in Washington, D.C. One more thing for this particular episode, my interview with Alex about Land and Freedom. The audio wasn't great. Uh, I think the Zoom link on his end uh, didn't quite work out so well, and it kind of drifts off towards the end, especially I tried to restate his questions when you know responding to whatever questions he had. So I apologize for the audio not being optimal in this episode. I hope you enjoy anyway. Take care. Hello and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more Shelf Stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales in games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Shop Co-op Shop Podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by. Uh, we have a- another uh, you know, I love uh, reaching into the corners uh, and highlighting games that, you know, folks aren't talking about playing, but they should. Uh, you know, I mean, you can uh, listen to the One Stop Co-op Shop, follow us if you want to talk about the latest Kickstarters and, you know, Dungeon Crawlers, which is what our fans love, painting minis and all that. Uh, but when you want to come into my little corner of spaces, solo and co-op, I love uh, reaching into other perspectives and showing you some uh, hidden gems uh, for your collection. So with that in mind, uh, a designer is hopping on the show, first time designer, uh, but uh, is working on uh, lots of other designs, which we'll talk about. Uh, the game is called Land and Freedom. The Spanish Revolution and Civil War has some uh, very much in the wargaming space, but it has some other elements I'm excited to talk about. Uh, the designer is Alex Knight. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. And we're going to do something a little bit different uh, because Alex wanted to know about me and <laughs> some of the work that I'm doing right. and uh, some of the what I consider to be some of the larger trends in uh, gaming, especially history gaming. So it's going to be a little bit of a unique one. So I'm going to ask some questions and foreground a game because we're the one-stop co-op shop. We love you know co uh, solo games and uh, showing people games. And then we're going to turn it around uh, and have a wider discussion about what's going on. And Alex is going to interview me. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to that. <laughs> I did half the fun. work for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, introduce yourself uh, to our audience. Yeah, so my name is Alex Knight. I'm a board game designer in Philadelphia. Um, I've been designing games the last five years. I have a number of prototypes that are either about radical history or um, social struggle and organizing. 
and my first land of freedom is my first game that's that's been published it came out last month uh, on blue panther games which is like a small um mostly war game publisher in tennessee and uh it's been getting really good reception so yeah that's um i'm kind of breaking into the into the scene right now and trying to learn more about it so that's why i wanted to talk to jason initially yeah uh and you 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 come out the gate with some interesting stuff uh so it's so the game as we said is land of freedom it's about the spanish civil war so obviously history gaming perspective uh and exciting things happening at the end of the month uh circle con is being held kevin bertram who is uh, from fort circle games who is an alumni of uh the one-stop co-op shop is holding a conference uh, he is the, he's the publisher of games like Shores of Tripoli, Votes for Women, which are both somewhere <laughs> in my uh, pile over here. Uh, and we're getting together a lot of history gamers. So obviously what Alex is doing is folding right in. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the history perspective. Why jump in there? Why not just design the uh, the next point salad or Uno? Why jump uh, directly into the uh, Spanish Civil War? Yeah, so um, I've always been inspired by the by the Spanish Revolution and Civil War. Um, so ever since I learned about it, um, and that was the very first thing I wanted to make a game about when I decided I wanted to make games. Um, for me, what's inspiring about the history is the barometer self management in within a modern economy, in terms of the workers of Spain, public in Spain not fascist Spain, but Republican Spain, um, taking over the factories and organizing them collectively and running them themselves uh, without management or bosses. Um, you know, so that's peasants. Kind of a, that's kind of an undertold story, like in terms right. of the Republic of Spain. Uh, talk a little bit about just from a history perspective, how that fits in, because we know Franco, like we know what yeah. happened in the, in the middle of the 20th century with fascism and authoritarianism. But tell me that undertold story a little bit. Yeah, so um, many of these workers were um, members of the CNT uh, union, which was the largest uh, labor union in Spain at the time, uh, which was an anarchist-led union. Um, and they collectivized their workplaces in in huge numbers. Um, in Barcelona alone, there were 3,000 collectivized uh, industries and enterprises. Um, the workers controlled the public utilities. They controlled the electricity. They controlled public transport, they controlled uh, the weapons uh, manufacturing um, and many other industries. Uh, the peasants of Spain who were very impoverished at the time, most of whom did not own any land, uh, they collectively began organizing and taking over the land from, from the large landowners and farming them collectively. Uh, so this was a huge self-empowerment movement that happened when the fascist coup took place. Uh, it created a vacuum in which uh, the workers were able to seize momentum and seize control of the of the means of production, um, and the Republican government, you know, tried to sort of resist this uh, for the purpose of gaining foreign aid from foreign from the British and the French and the Americans. But uh, you know, that's a that's a whole another story. But as far as what the workers were doing, it was labor organizing and also collectivizing uh, their workplaces. And that's obviously, you know, an undertold story, like you said, but it's it's a really inspiring thing that involved, you know, the activity of millions of people. Um, and at the same time that that was happening, we also had um, a sexual revolution because the women of Spain, of Republican Spain, were seizing the initiative in terms of their place in society, demanding equality in the workplace, demanding equality in the bedroom, in the home, 
at the at the front. They wanted to fight as well, um, and the government, you know, tried to resist this as well. But uh, there was an organization called Mujeres Libres, which means free women. Um, and since today is actually, you know, International Women's Day, I thought I would just yeah. say a few things about it. Um, but it was a, you know, an organization of anarchist women that had over twenty thousand members at its at its height, um, and they were doing things like sex education, promoting uh, women's education and and training to enter the job corps, um, promoting access to abortion and, and birth control, um, as well as promoting egalitarian relationships and free love. Um, and I wanted to just say a few words about one particular uh, member of Mujeres Libres, who is Lola Iturbe. Um, she was born in poverty in uh, in Barcelona. She worked as a maid, as a child. She ended up joining the CNT, the Anarchist Union, um, and she became an editor of the newspaper Tierra y Libertad, which means land and freedom. Um, and that was the newspaper of the, uh, basically the anarchist union in, in Spain. Uh, she joined Mujeres Libres and uh, ended up going to the Aragon front, which is one of the four fronts in my game. Uh, and she covered the war as a journalist for Fortier Libertad and other outlets, uh, accompanying Emma, the famous American anarchist, when she was in Spain touring the different revolutionary experiments that were going on there. And then after the war, she went into exile in France and ended up joining the French resistance during World War II. So a really fascinating life. Um, certainly someone that I would like to learn more about, but uh, one of, she's one of the people that's covered in Martha Ecclesburg's uh, excellent book, Free Women of Spain, which which I recommend. Um, okay. So that's just a couple of things. The sexual revolution, the, the worker revolution, all these things were happening. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to make a game to, to show these things. I love games that tell undertold stories. Uh, Puerto Rico 1897 in part uh, came about from my own research uh, in Puerto Rican farming in uh, the post-colonial era. And it was an untold story of tobacco farmers and they they kept their land and they you know resisted the big transition to sugar plantations. I can talk all about that all day. <laughs> but yeah, you know, undertold stories, right? And yeah. you know, worker-centered and all that kind of thing. Uh, so let's get to the game itself. So it is yeah. called uh, Land and Freedom, the Spanish Revolution and Civil War, uh, published by Blue Panther. So it is available now if you want to get it. Uh, not too much uh, video content about it out there so far. We'll hopefully uh, do what we can to change that. But uh, give us the 30,000 foot uh, overview <laughs> of what people can expect. Yeah, so it's um, it's not exact. It's not totally a co-op game. It's a half co-op and half co uh, competitive. So basically, there's a three, one to three player game. There's three uh, factions in the game. You have the anarchists, the communists, and the moderates. Those are the three factions which are working together to defend the Republic against the fascists, which are attacking uh, the four fronts. So on the uh, sort of cooperative side of the game, you're working together against the fascists. It's very much an anti-fascist game. Mm -hmm. um, but then on the right side of the board is the competitive side. So the three factions are initiative basically for political initiative. Um, the anarchists are trying to push up the two revolutionary tracks, which are liberty and collectivization. So sort of corresponding with the, the sexual revolution and the worker revolution that I mentioned. Um, the other two factions, the communists and the moderates, they are the government factions. So they're trying to repress the anarchist revolution and also take control of the government. So the two of them are sort of fighting over the government and they, they each also have 
uh, two other tracks, Foreign Aid and Soviet Support, that each one belongs to one of those players. So each player has two tracks that they're trying to boost and, you know, wrestle. It's basically a tug of war. It's uh, very much the mechanics are similar to Watergate, if you've played that. Um, it's basically a card-driven game, not super complicated, but uh, the main goal for me in designing it was to give a really tense experience where you're constantly pulled in two directions, where you need to work together against the fascists to survive, so battling each other for and you know being on that trying to find that right balance of how much to devote this side of the board or that side of the board uh is the tension that i wanted to, to create in players and i think it succeeds pretty well in that okay uh is there a level of asymmetry in there do the players play differently um watergate was sort of asymmetric i mean not really um mm -hmm. but and there, there's slightly different goals but in terms of like the core card play of Watergate, it was kind of the same. You know, you're playing your card, it's multi-use, either you play it for the top for some effect or for the bottom for some special effect. So um, does it have a similar kind of asymmetric, but not really, or is there a little bit more there? Yeah, I'd say it's a mild asymmetry. The main the main asymmetry is the different tracks that I mentioned. Then each player has the two tracks that they're trying to, uh, to boost. As for uh, the cards, yeah, each player has their own deck of 18 cards. So there is some sort of deck management that you're doing, sort of like Watergate. And uh, you can either play the cards for their events, in which case it's like a big one-time effect, but then you trash it. Or you can build a tableau. And when you do that, you kind of are working for the long term where your turns are going to get more and more powerful as you go. Mm -hmm. um, and there's three years. Um, so each year you're kind of getting a little bit more strong, but the fascists are also getting much stronger each year. So you have to... You, there's a little bit of push your luck element where you're, you know, if you devote a little bit too much to being selfish this turn, you risk potentially losing the game for everyone. And um, the really, uh, the thing, the mechanic that I think I'm happiest about is that there's a bag bu building element. So when you gain the initiative, it allows you to put one of your tokens into the bag. And at the end of the game, whoever pulls the most tokens out of that bag is going to end up winning the game assuming that you can hold off the fascists because if you can't do that it doesn't matter um but the fact that there's a little bit of uncertainty in terms of who's actually winning um or who's uh pushes everyone into that sort of uh fog of war kind of feeling of well i think i'm doing well but i'm not really sure so i want to be more selfish but on the other hand i even if i'm kind of falling behind i still have some chance so mm -hmm. i can't just abandon the war effort um so everyone's always a little bit uncertain of how much to be pulled in one direction or the other, which I think is really good. Okay. How does solo work? It's a one to three player game. Yeah. So the, basically I just designed um, some pretty simple bots for the factions. So you can flip the player eight over and it gives you the rules for the non-player factions. Uh, so you could play as any of the three factions and have the other two as bots, uh, or you could play two player and have one bot. Um, or I haven't actually tried this, but I'm sure if you're really a sicko, you could just straight up have three non-players go at it and just watch. <laughs> I don't know why you would. Or like a computer you, sim? You could do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you are interested, um, I don't know how many people out there love, like Watergate. I, I played Watergate when I was visiting Greg. Uh, very fun. Uh, and just simple card play, you know, like I'm playing a card and I'm I'm going, I'm getting the influence and I'm I'm reacting directly to uh, the person across from me. Tug of war just isn't done very much in the solo sphere in particular. Uh, so you know, I think we're so used to kind of engine building and you know I'm gonna get like my my tree of points and whatever. Uh, you know, tug of war games tend to be very nip tuck. 
where it's like, okay, I do all this, I do all this, this, and I make this little progress in the track. <laughs> you know, and that's significant and it's meaningful and it has a much different feel than like an engine builder. Uh, so, I mean, Land of Freedom, uh, it is available now if you wanted to check it out. Uh, where can people, what's the best uh, place for people to pick it up? Uh, what, directly from the publisher website or is there another place? Yeah, <clears throat> if you're if you're in North America, definitely the, the, the Blue Panther website, bluepantherllc.com. Uh, it is being sold now in Spain and Poland and soon it'll be sold to Japan from other places, UK. Um, but it's, yeah, we're still working to find other distributors around the world. But right now, just go to bluepantherllc.com. Um, it is a, Blue Panther is very much a war game publisher. They're a small publisher and they do all their own printing in the U.S., um, they also but, uh, did uh, Stonewall Uprising, so uh, that's yes. another uh, favorite that uh, we haven't covered it here because we cover solo co-op. But if you want a, a history game about the Stonewall up uh, Stonewall riots in New York City, LGBTQ rights, uh, so I mean, lots of you know, uh, <laughs> you know, Viva la gente, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's and that's what I was going to say is that um, I don't really consider my game a war game. I think it is much more a historical game. Um, a card-driven historical game, similar to what you're saying with um, with Stonewall Uprising is another great example where it's like showing this piece of, you know, radical history or organizing history um, that is a, a topic that, you know, I want to talk to you more about, but it's something that's being covered more in games and it's, and we're not just, history games aren't just solely being, a, you know, war games and military uh, simulations. Right. All right. So let's get into it. You have some questions for me. Uh, I, I have done cultural <laughs> consulting. Uh, I did the Puerto Rico game, uh, which I haven't really talked a ton about, uh, but there's a video on my channel for the finished product. Uh, and as the game gets out there, then I'll have more uh, to say because, you know, I have to kind of work with a publisher. I've also done cultural consulting for Trip Theory Games and Portal Games and a couple other places uh, and very active <laughs> amongst people who are interested in this stuff. So, yeah, please uh, fire away. Yeah, and I and one of the reasons I those are all great reasons why I was excited to talk to you. But I think you you have so much knowledge about what's going on in the industry lately that I think um, you're you're much more knowledgeable about this topic than I am. So that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you about it. Um, but it does seem like uh, we've seen a, a recent trend of more and more games that are addressing these sort of issues of social struggles, whether history or in the abstract. Um, or sort of anti-oppressive organizing type themes. So, you know, you mentioned Stonewall Uprising. There's also Votes for Women, of course, um, Block by Block, Free at Last. You know, the list is kind of growing in the past mm -hmm. few years of these games that are addressing these topics, um, along with my game, obviously. But uh, I'm wondering what you think is is at the root of this. Is this a is this really? Do you believe that this is a growing trend? And if it is. Why is this happening now? Why not 10, 15, 20 years ago? Is there something that's changed in the industry? Is it more so that uh, there's more people designing these games now? Or or is it that the industry itself is more receptive to these topics being gamified? Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of things. Uh, so we have had a a smattering of, I guess, kind of games against the grain. Like we've always wanted games against the grain. Like, you know, wherever you get kind of a, a dominant uh, ideology or a dominant perspective, you're going to have, you know, little uprisings here and there of like people that are trying to do something different. So your question is, okay, why did this particular moment seem to bust through a little bit more? Um, I think the groundwork was laid with games like Wingspan. Uh, Wingspan was huge. I cannot, a lot of like people who listen to this show are going to like poo-poo wingspan. It was so overrated. It's not that great a game. 
way like okay i mean as a game you can kind of like argue back and forth just as a mechanical experience but as a package as you know a premium triple a product that was given the you know, the soup to nuts um production values uh women up and down designers play testers artists uh and elizabeth hargrave being who she is just like a really steady uh voice uh in gaming it wasn't you didn't come in with like a shrill like oh this is where waving the flag no she's just like a gamer like you and me uh, and she came in there. So Wingspan, I really think, is underrated as a watershed moment in terms of like games from different perspectives. So like it's not a history game, but games like, you know, you're making an aviary. Who thought that making an aviary game that would be cool? Uh, I think uh, we've had Jamie on the show, Jamie Stegmaier, and he talked about like his initial uh, print run was like 10,000 copies. It was like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good print run. Instant, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, Um well, and it was that slow because if he heard from distributors, they're like, okay, I don't think we can sell much more than this. So that's all he printed. But they misread the market. They misread the hunger for something different, right? Um, so then I guess the Spirit Island would be a, another example of, mm -hmm. uh, a, you know, kind of a, a anti-colonialist game. Um, we're actually going to talk about that. And um, I'm going to have Co Worley and Mary Flanagan on the show. Um, mm. I did a panel with them and we mentioned yeah. Spirit Island. So I'm like, you know, let's follow up and talk about, uh, we have our criticisms of how it, how it um, talks about colonialism, but it, it flips it on its head. And it was a very, it, like, it helps. These were two excellent games. And it, and if they were kind of like not as excellent, then I don't think we would have kind of busted through. Like, um, mm. I think, um, you know, so like those aren't the only games. Like I have a game behind me on my right shoulder, Rescue Polar Bears. It's an environmental game. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we've had those games before. It's just like, okay, where where is the the the? We, you look for the lead blocker, right? You look for the the one that created the opening. I really look at those two games in particular. I might be forgetting a couple for for setting the pace, right? And and expanding who's making the games and what we can make games about. Uh, I think another turning point, quite frankly, was Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, Black Lives Matter was a huge event for publishers to kind of wake up and figure out that wait. Uh, you know, there was that whole thing of like, okay, every publisher has to make a statement. And I don't, I don't love that. Right. I mean, they make a statement. Then a year later, they make, you know, the next colonialist garbage. Uh, and I call yeah. out Asmodee in particular, right? Asmodee was gross at this because they released this wonderful sounding statement. We're going to have, uh, you know, representation in our games. We're going to listen to the community. We're going to give you what you want. And then a year later, they release all white Jamaica. They released, you know, the next tomb reading, whatever, whatever. So as cynical as some of that was at the top end, I think that, a lot of other publishers, maybe on the smaller end, kind of got the hint that there was a because it was huge, a very um, big outcry for that. So I think that 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 also created a groundswell and inspired gamers to to play. I know votes for women start was started the design process started during the pandemic and during all that uproar, uh, and a lot of projects were just started and we're starting to see them now. So uh, just so a lot of things have changed uh, to, to you know. Uh, to kind of get uh, get the ball moving forward. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I could keep on going, but I think in terms of what, like why now, those are some good indicators. Yeah, and, and what about for you with um, Puerto Rico 1897? Are those sort of the things that were bubbling behind at your back to push you in, in terms of, you know, forcing that game into, into being? So I, I did the, so Black Lives Matter happened in 2020, uh, June. Uh, that That wave hit us. And I did my initial video uh, in 2021. And I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, there has been a lot of stuff. Like you go back into the, the forums of BG, which I did for the research. Uh, there's threads going back as far as 2010. Games released in 2022, 2010, there were forum threads. 
the problem was it ran into that wall of it's just the games you know like you know basically let's settle the question by kind of suppressing asking the question and then they're like okay so you know we dealt with this let's move on uh and it wasn't <laughs> dealt with and we had to move on uh in terms of the the black lives matter movement i think that I don't. I'm. I got to be really careful because I don't want to say too much about the back process because that's not my 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 thing. But I think it's easy enough to read that it took that movement to convince the publisher that a change needed to be made. Those conversations were happening for ten years in different places, in Reddit, in uh, you know other different Facebook groups. Like every single time people come, oh, I don't like the in Puerto Rico, whatever. Oh, you why don't you like the in Puerto Rico? It's just the game. Enjoy it. And just go back and forth, back and forth. But what convinced the publisher to make a change was that movement, honestly. And when I made my video, I have a very um, kind of, I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist. I don't, I'm a social worker. <laughs> I'm not a, like a, a natural kind of bomb thrower. I'm very, um, I, I'm very forward looking and I'm very constructive in my criticism. They responded to that. And when the initial conversation happened, uh, it was just a conversation, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make it more than a conversation. And I made my video. Uh, Puerto Rico 1997 and they liked the video and they said okay do this you know because we can't sell at the gate the way they the way it is anymore we don't want to mm. so I that's why I, when you ask the question what what changed I really think the BLM movement mm. as much as people dump on it really mm -hmm. it, it's like oh no what did you do it was a bunch of people whining it created the conditions people listened and yeah are we backsliding off of that? That might be a different question. Is is gaming yeah. kind of reverting back to a little bit more of a conservative space? I think that's natural as backlash sits in. So it's incumbent upon those of us who want to see change to keep on pushing. So that's why, you know, I'm excited to have these conversations and continue to, you know, do what I do. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I think Black Lives Matter was was enormous. Um, but I but you kind of brought it up. I am curious to hear what you think about the obstacles that you've seen that have gotten in the way or, or that, that maybe the resistance that there was to, you know, to Puerto Rico 1897 or the resistance that you see maybe in the gaming industry to these types of games or these types of themes being covered in games. Um, how much of that have you seen? How much of that have you experienced? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> yeah. Open all quarters. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, um, I think the like you know ye old center of the hobby uh, is a middle to upper class straight white and male and that's just demographics and that and I just finished the forum post on this it's not about hating on that demographic I, it's fine I most of my best friends I'm on the one sub co op shop where it's a bunch of straight white guys in our thirties and forties and above uh, it's not it, I don't want to sweep out um, you know straight white guys and I think there's an assumption that like because we point that out. The hobby's full of straight white guys. That there's an assumption that okay, we're gonna, you're going to sweep y'all out, and that's a it's a fear instinct. It's not like what we're saying. What we're saying is not about your presence. It's about your everywhereness. It's about the fact that you're everywhere, uh, and that's normal. Like the it's default human in these games, and not just like the default human, the default face. It's the default way of seeing things. So, uh, the depend on colonization. What's the idea about colonization? They can make colonization games. I'm playing colonization game. I'm not being. It's not, I'm not a baby. Uh, none of us are. We want, we want to play adult entertainment. It's just the colonization games we've been getting from that kind of you know bit of the upper class straight white guy perspective makes the colonizer the hero, and that 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 we don't want, right? Uh, that's what we don't want. We want to you know tell the tell stories from a different angle, different perspectives, keeping history. Uh, so on the on the player end, on the online end. 
that's been a, a difficult thing. But I don't want to over-exaggerate that. Like I get into arguments all the time because it's fun for me, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is really publishers. I think publishers, it's almost like with some of them, it's like they're they're reading the market, but they're on a time delay. You know, so they're reading, they're doing whatever worked in the past. And, you know, it's like, okay, if, you know, wouldn't, uh, I think publishers can be risk averse and they go to the tried and trues, you know, they go to the tried and true Cthulhu, <laughs> tried and true tomb rating, tried and true, uh, whatever. So it's like, okay, I mean, and th there's nothing, I mean, it, it works, right? It works. They can guarantee if they have a, a decent enough game and a familiar theme, like people can put on like an old sock and, you know, they will do their thing. So it's like, um, I think that as long as publishers are operating on that mindset of like, okay, like we're just going to do what works, almost like an algorithm, right? What, what do algorithm? What are algorithms? Algorithms just like predictors of the future based on the past. Like you did, you feed data into an algorithm, it just spits out the same thing over and over again. So that's why it's bad. Like it's hard to get that change. You know, these publishers, they just they they don't care. They don't care. They just want to make money and they just want to get sales. So convincing them on the moral and okay, you know, make more better perspectives has been very difficult, you yeah. know? And it's just like, so I have to make this kind of sales argument, which is difficult because, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, like the, the, the hobbyist still looks like what it looks like. So, right. But and, it, yeah. But I think what you said earlier, um, spirit Island and wingspan, those are examples where you can point to and say, oh, well, there is, it does seem like there is maybe a growing market for, for these sort of right. outside the box topics or even like anti-colonial perspectives or anti-racist perspectives or whatever. Um, There's so that... still, it's those games were excellent. And we're still in a position where a game that is outside the box that is meant for like wide distribution, like you can make any little, like, you know, small print game. Like you, you can do all sorts of perspectives. And I'm very excited about block by block and your game. Those are, those are small publishers, small perspectives that, that is open. You, you can get, I have uh, this game called Thindaya, which is, uh, was on game found. It's from the perspective of Canary Islands, indigenous people during the time of the, um, Spanish conquest. It's fantastic. Oh, I love wow. that game. I cool. love that game. It's like a, it's a survival game, and oh, I, I've played through it on the on the channel. So that you can get those games, um, but when I'm, we're talking about getting the publisher uh, perspective and getting a distribution as wide as Theory Island and Wingspan and all that, it has to be truly excellent, which is very uh, puts a lot of pressure on the creator. You know, the, there's the old aphorism: we have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And yeah. you know, we're still in a place where, like, uh, you know. A, the, uh, to be quite frankly, you know, something less than excellent, maybe even mediocre can get made because this designer is this publisher's friend. We're still in yeah. that space. Sure. So we, so yes, the excellent games have busted through, but in a way it would, it would mark a sign of progress if like the mediocre game also published a uh, busted through, like just games out of the fire hose from all sorts of perspectives. Right. So we're still working on that. Yeah. Got some work to do. Um, going back to the question of resistance, though, um, I've seen you on Twitter engage with, you know, either like ignorant or hateful comments or think, you know, people making really horrible comments online, which is obviously, you know, that's the Internet. It happens. Um, but also like <laughs> in, you know, it can be distressing. I know for me, like, you know, with my game, like my game is explicitly an anti-fascist game. So 
there are fascists out there, some of whom play games, um, and they don't like the fact that this game exists, and they're going to voice their opinion about it. And then, you know, I've had to, uh, I see that basically, um, and so I, I know that you see a lot of these types of comments too. But you have a different approach, I think, in responding to them than I do. Because for me, I, I try to just ignore them or, you know, just not see them. But I think with you, I'm interested in, to hear your perspective on. Do you, do you feel like you have a different uh, emotional reaction when you see these kind of comments? You want to you want to bring them to people's attention to show how, how wrong they are? It's important for us to know what's out there. Like I understand for people's own safety uh, and, you know, I'm a trained conversational specialist. Like I do this as a job <laughs> yeah. you know? and I, I do, uh, you know, crisis intervention and I do, you know, moderation, uh, you know, family therapy. And I'm, this is like, I, I'm trained in this. So I do not expect any other person, although it'd be nice if someone wants to come in on my side. Uh, I've gotten a lot of comments. They did people drop into DMs like, man, I thank you for doing what you're doing. I don't think I could do it. I'm like, mm. I, I, at the, on the one time, I feel kind of, you know, um, you know, thank you for saying that. But it's like, oh my God, you know, someone come in there. It'll really get in there because I truly feel that change can't just be like, okay, let me make my thing. And okay, people will kind of follow it. I mean, it, it does happen. Like that's what Elizabeth Harvey did. She doesn't jump in the comments. She doesn't give. She doesn't care. She does not have to care. Um, and she may change. Um, but if you if we really want to kind of make it stick, where it's just not like a one off, I really feel like it's worth it to go in there. Because uh, I I differentiate. There are some commenters who are coming at it from a complete like you know meanness right and they're they truly yeah. their their fear center is activated they think they were well i'm taking away fun and we're gonna yeah. replace them and everything and like and they and they're mean about it i won't i don't engage that i, I block that but there are some people who are triggered they're just triggered and they're, they're afraid and so it's like if i can come in there and convince people that like they have nothing to be afraid of mm. that we're not out to replace them that it's just it really is about this is what the hobby looks like and this is, we're going to try to open the perspective. So I'm able to, you know, kind of tell the difference between those two things and do some kind of conversational ninjutsu <laughs> and turn some of that around. Like I've had, I've had those, some of those experiences and they're great. Um, I can count them on like, you know, two hands, but it's, <laughs> I don't know how much of a difference I'm yeah. making there. Um, but it's not just about the person there. Um, I've had people like, okay, oh, I read that comment thread. It's really for them. Yeah. Right? It's for the person who's reading the comment thread, who's like, yeah. wow, well, you went in there and I saw what you did and thank you so much. And like, I've gotten more of that in terms of like, you know, hmm. and stuff like that. So I, I do think it's valuable to, if the person is speaking out of a sense of aggrievement, as opposed to a sense of like meanness or aggression, it's hard to tell the difference, but it's, I think it's worth it when hmm. it, in the former case, because you know, I'm just, I'm a kind guy. I think that the word hmm. continues kindness. Um, so am I helping? Am I, you know, kind of a part of a movement? I don't know. I don't want to like overspeak that. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I just, I try my best. So Yeah, I think that's a really interesting distinction. Aggrievement versus aggression. That, that's yeah. really interesting. Oh, so you're asking about the emotional toll it takes uh, in terms of the negativity. Um, right. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think, so... You know, I'm a history. Uh, I my my side thing is history. I read a lot of history. Uh, no, like you know what what's the Frederick Delacroix? No, um, change comes without demand. Power concedes nothing without demand. Uh, there's a reason it's demand and not just asking. And you know, so I think the the you know there's criticism that comes from all sides. Uh, and I think you do it long enough, you begin to it, it begins to repeat. Right, it becomes kind of boring. 
to like, okay, mm-hmm. uh, this type of person is going to say this, this type of person is going to say this. And it's almost like I know what you're going to say before you even say it. Um, a lot of the time. Sometimes people will surprise me, of course, because they're people. That's great. But for the most part, you know, they're coming at it from like, well, and so it's like every one of my videos, I'm not trying to take your game. I'm not trying to replace you. I'm not trying to divide. Uh, <laughs> it just like over and over again. Because uh, I understand the motivation. I understand like what human, who humans fear. Humans fear, uh, you know, being knocked down from their status and they fear getting having stuff taken. Uh, so I, I, you know, in terms of like how I handle it, you know, I just I don't engage the surface. I don't like try to convince people that of what I'm doing individually. Like you know, like if I designed votes for women, I wouldn't sit there like defending what votes for women says. I would just like go straight to the fear and be like, okay, no, I'm not. This isn't meant to take your game away. This is meant to make you feel bad, right? Okay, vote for women exists. Does that exist as a uh, you know uh, a finger in the mi- uh, middle of the white male who like at one point oppressed women and denied the vote? No, it doesn't. Like that that's your projection if you feel that way. Uh, so like, no, this is just like a part of history. So like we have tons and tons of games. It's just like, no, th- th- this is just another one. And like, we're celebrating it now because of the imbalance, you know, celebrating it because we're trying to replace people. So like, that's, it's fine. Um, and then people don't buy that, but at least, you know, it's, it's a solid enough argument where it's like, you know, all right, mic drop, boom, done. That's the argument. If you don't want to engage that, then I can't help you. Uh, so at, at, at certain points, like I've kind of developed kind of a baseline of like, okay, let me answer your fear. And if you're not convinced by that, then I'm not going to convince you anything. Uh, that That's when I kind of close the book and move on. So that kind of helps me seal in some of the emotional stuff. It's like, okay, I've made my argument. I'm done. I'm going to go take a walk. <laughs> uh, and all that yeah, I think taking a walk is, is the best policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think you're, you articulated well there. Uh, I guess my last question is really just um, relatively new community of of game design or, or publishing. Um, and I, I'm just how we can continue this conversation with the broader community. How, how, how do you see this uh, conversation about, you know, games about quality or just um, taking shape? And, and do you see, do, do you see any ways that, you know, people who are designing these types of games can support one another to, to sort of encourage more designs to have more of these designs to get out there to, um, to a larger audience. Yeah, I, I mean, like, so we had mentioned before Kevin's uh, thing, the Circle DC Con. Uh, you can actually buy a, a badge for it, I, I imagine. Um, that's on the published, that's on the designer end, right? Um, so on the designer end, uh, I think that we can do a lot to kind of get ourselves together. And we do, you know, I like I said, I, that's how I got together with Greg Glowing Albright, our mutual friend. Uh, you know, we design a game together and there's like, you know, co-designs and I'm good friends with Kevin, I'm good friends with Jason Matthews, good friends with a lot of people in the industry. And we kind of support each other and help each other. David Thompson, uh, lots, lots of folks. So that's, that's like happening and we could kind of keep that going. I think um, it's about like, if we want to really step it up and we want to kind of gain influence and like, you know, ch- chop into the games that have influence. I think we need to do a little bit more, you know, kind of going after those bigger fish and going after those publishers, you know, like, you know, Elizabeth Hargrave, she went for Stonemaier. She went for, you know, Gray Fox and she went for uh, AEG. She has uh, games that are published through those um, uh, outfits and those are bigger publishers. So, you know, I I think it's, we, you know, we're making these games and they're kind of heavy in their theming and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, try to design games that we know will fit with those bigger imprints and we can encourage each other 
to you know design those games that we know a publisher might be likely to you know look at and make those connections with those larger publishers. So in my cultural consulting, I happen to have fallen into this connection that I have with Leia Robinsberger. That's a pretty big outfit. And I'm hopeful that, you know, through that, well, actually it has happened already. You know, I, I've worked with Portal Games is a pretty big company. And I, I mentioned a couple of the games before, uh, companies before. I, it's not done nearly, like I don't have ins with Asmodee. I don't have ins with like, you know, Fantasy Flight and Z-Man, the, the, that circle right there. Um, but I'd love it. <laughs> I would love that. So I think just supporting each other and keep and like looking at those bigger properties and bigger publishers and then supporting each other and trying to like get that bigger platform for what we're doing. And I think that's the next step, you know, and it'll be hard, but like, it's, I'm very hopeful that, you know, with the published printing issues aside that Puerto Rico 1897 does really well. And so that we can open the door for more things that tell alternative stories. Uh, but I think we shouldn't be afraid of going after the bigger fish. We shouldn't be afraid to hmm. go after, you know, be, you know, get more attention, you know, open ourselves up to the criticism. If something comes out that's big, you know, or like that is a, a big release and it's, it has something that's questionable, say something and say and and figure out a way to say it in not just like your the Twitter bubble, but like different platforms, like, you know, on a video or through a game or through an interview or, you know, something like that. Like we need, like we can, we can push. There's room for it. And I think we should, if we want to keep any momentum we got off of BLM. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I, this conversation for me, great insight into that larger conversation. And I'm hoping that that will continue. So thank you so much for having me on your guest. It was really a pleasure to talk. Well, thank you very much for interviewing me, my friend. Uh, the the audio is <laughs> struggling a little bit uh, here at the end, but I hope that people get enough of a sense of the conversation to uh, talk about that. So, okay, so just kind of wrapping up, Land and Freedom, uh, you can you can get it right now uh, from Blue Panther Games. Uh, you also have a game with the Tessa Collective that's coming that's coming up soon. And that that's a game about uh, coworkers using their place to go on strike, um, and that's hopefully it's a finished. It'll be coming next year or so. Okay. Uh, so in case the audio wasn't clear on that, it is an organizing game, a card game, card giving game, very inexpensive. Tessa Collect doesn't, doesn't print expensive games. Uh, but, you know, if you want a card driven organizing game that's Tess Cooperative, that's uh, will be available from them. Uh, and we got more to come. So um, Alex Knight, thank you so much for stopping by the show. Thanks for having me. It, it was my pleasure. If you change your mind, you change the world, people. So until next time, later, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list.